This is Docera Digest Podcast, breaking down health concepts. This podcast is brought to you by Docera Life Center. This innovative clinic is finding new solutions to the evolving challenges mankind faces in the 21st century. By utilizing cutting edge technology and testing, they find root causes and also offer treatment with energy and nutrition. What is the mission? To dynamically change lives for the better while impacting families for generations. The information shared directly or indirectly in the Docera Digest podcast is not to be understood as or misconstrued as medical advice. This information is not a replacement for your current health provider who is acutely aware of your current health state and course of treatment. Any information shared about a product or service discussed by any host or guest on this podcast is not to be interpreted as a doctor-patient relationship. Well, welcome back to our second episode on parasites. If you're back, it's evidence that you took the red pill, meaning you want more knowledge, more information. So in all seriousness, uh, we do hope that those of you who haven't watched the first episode do go back and watch it because we talked about all the concepts of the misconceptions, the prevalence of parasites, the transmission, the parasitical world, and some of the testing issues that don't really find anything, right? I also want to encourage you to watch the rest of our upcoming episodes, where in episode three, we'll be discussing how parasites affect our hormones, specifically the thyroid, as well as the brain, the neurotransmitters, the nervous system, and even our emotions. Then in episode four, we'll discuss how the moon and different seasons affect parasites, the types of parasites in our homes, at our work, our jobs, and our occupations, and then even how they can actually reproduce more in us. And then episode five, we'll discuss the parasites that we commonly see in our clinic and how we deal with that. And then in episode six, guess what? Wow. Victory over parasites. We're going to talk about how you can win the battle, win the war in the parasitical world. So in this episode, I'm going to be discussing a few of the genetic issues with parasites. Dr. Caleb will go into discussing issues of the microbiomes, what they are and how they affect us or parasites affect them. Dr. Craig will be talking about what biofilms are and how parasites affect them to alter us and change us. Dr. Kyson is going to discuss how parasites steal from us and how they're really just terrorists in our bodies. Then Dr. Luke, our finisher. Dr. Luke will finish up talking about food sensitivities and the dysfunction that parasites can cause in our digestive tract. So genetics and parasites, oh my, why is this even an issue? More specifically, how does our DNA or our genomes of our DNA and any genetic variation affect parasite infections? The first thing we need to understand is that this is an issue in both the parasites and in us. We know that most parasites have the ability to adapt, change, and even mutate themselves to be able to survive in a very hostile environment. Did you know that we are a very hostile environment? for parasites, viruses, bacteria, and fungi, and mold. Yet in a parasite's genetic code, they have the ability to morph into many different variations depending upon the virulence of the body that they are infecting or trying to live either in or on. So most parasites only adapt enough to be invisible to our immune system so that they can survive and then thrive living inside of us. Some parasites are so adaptive to their genome that they can mutate or change many times through the generations of living inside of you. 
right? Meaning multiple genetic variations or generations over the decades they're living within you. Then they produce offsprings inside of you that your body thinks are a part of you and therefore they no longer attack them. Understanding that these parasites genetically are diverse, that they can identify and specifically target and attach to a wide range of cells or tissues. Now, in the previous uh, series, we talked about how some of these can be dormant for years before they actually engage. And then once they have engaged, they know how to become invisible or hide from our own immune system that's supposed to take care of that, right? And when we start looking at some of those factors, we know that they actually employ things like antigenic changes, molecular member key, or even the change, the antigenic reaction that we have as part of the process of presentation. So what's significant to understand and remember is that parasites know how to or have learned how to adapt to be able to exploit our systems for their benefit of establishment and growth and even reproduction. So let me put it this way. Parasites have adapted over thousands of years to be the favored one to exploit our bodies to be able to prolong their infection and avoid killing us. Ouch. They know how to change us for their benefit. And we have lost some of the abilities to change their environment or change their ability to kill them off. So they've learned how to hijack our systems and even our food sources to be able to survive and thrive long enough to reduce or assume to reproduce for as long as they can. Now think about that. We have research that shows that parasites can go in and change our thought process of the foods they like and they want and they need to survive, of the world they want to be in, whether it's hot or cold or et cetera. Mine must be a beach one. I love to be on the beach. I'm not sure what that is, right? So what about us? Cannot we do the same thing and adapt to find them and kill them off? Remember that our bodies are designed to fight off all sorts of different foreign invaders, whether it be bacteria, viruses, fungi, or parasites. And this is where a lot of people believe that their body has the ability to fight off and even prevent getting parasites. And yes, it's supposed to do that. However, with today's dietary uh, processed and genetically altered foods, that is weakening our body's ability to fight off parasites. Since most parasitic infections, all right, whoops, hang on. Since most parasitic infections come through the mouth and through our digestive tract or into our lungs, and even a few have come in through the skin, it became apparent that we should find out if our bodies actually even have the ability to A, recognize them, B, fight them, and C, kill and eradicate them out of our body. Remember, we talked about all those stages. Even the carcass stage is a toxic stage. So the last 10 years or more, we've been looking at the genome, the human genome, to find out if our bodies even have this ability. Or if we do, where did we lose it? Now, remember, we talk about genetic uh, issues and we talk about generational genetic issues. You're never the same as the two that created you, right? Think of mama and papa, right? You alter and change every time. So every generation either becomes stronger or weaker. And as we've watched in genetics, we see that over the apparent 10 to 14 generations, there's a circadian rhythm of ups and downs and ups and downs that occur. So some people have more resistance, some people have less resistance. So looking at the genome is kind of like looking at a, a map or a road map. On the map, a roads or highways allow things to get in or around your body. So if the map reveals that a road is closed or under construction or a new one's being built, then we can determine if your body is deficient 
in its ability to respond or to react to these parasitic infections. More specifically, by looking at the map that we call the methylation pathway of your genes or your enzymes that di dictate how your body reacts, we can determine some pretty interesting things. So here's a few things we have to look at to understand your body's ability to fight off parasites. How do you break down and metabolize the air you breathe, the food, and the food you eat, and the liquids you drink, and what you absorb into your skin? Because those are only the three ways into the body. How do you create, use, and store energy? How do you fight inflammation? We call these your firefighters. How do you build an immune system? I like to call these your army of soldiers. How do you build hormones that supervise the entirety of the body, over 600 different types of hormones? How do you build neurotransmitters that affect your brain, your thoughts, your emotions, the heart, the lungs, the liver, and blood circulation? And then how do you build the many thousands of enzymes that are stimulators or processors of cell activity and reactivity? And then how do you build new cells, repair bad cells, repair damaged membranes, and break down and recycle old cells? And then how do you either turn off family diseases, so we call those prefamilial disposition diseases, like in my family, you know, I have 12 brothers and sisters, and my father had all these heart attacks. Well, seven of us, 13, carry a lot of genomes that inflict cardiovascular disease. Can we turn that off? And we've been able to. So either we turn things on or we turn things off. All right. So what we look at in the genome or the genetic field is what we called single nucleic polymorphisms or SNPs. Now, most people have a variety of different SNPs already in their system. We used to call it the missing link or the damaged genomes or the things that are inherited or passed down. So look at the genomes. We can determine if you have the full potential that actually identifies parasitic bonds, right? And so by looking at your genes, we look at what's called the PPI or parasite protein interactions, which is what is occurring between a parasite and you. When they come in, what do you recognize? Friend or foe, right? Enemy or friend. Do I attack it? Do I accept it? Do I just let it go, all right? We can understand, once we look at this, we can understand the ability or the lack of the ability to fight off or even prevent a parasitic infection. Then we can see if you can react to their ability to mutate and change, right, to resist in your systems of identifying them, killing them, eradicating them. So if you're missing some of these SNPs, then we can understand how we can help your body not only defend itself from the parasite, but to kill off and then to eradicate them as well. So the next thing we want to look at is your body's ability to rebuild your defense mechanisms. Can you find them? Can you see them? And how do you fight them off? All right. Then we want to look at other issues that are potentially weakening your ability to identify and kill them off. So it's very important for us to know your genome if we want to be able to identify these issues. Now, there's a lot of things we can do around that. If we don't have your genome, we can still be very effective. But having that, we know the missing links or the holes that's in your system. Now, the next aspect of protection is what we call the microbiome, which is a very key important aspect to our health. And today, Dr. Caleb will discuss this. So, Dr. Caleb, over to you. All right. Thank you, Dr. Ben. So, we did discuss the microbiome some when we talked about Lyme disease. So I'm not going to go super in-depth on this today, but I do kind of want to do another overview of the microbiome. So, what the microbiome is is a collection of trillions, 
with a T, of microscopic organisms, primarily bacteria, that inhabit your body and especially the linings of your digestive tract and respiratory pathways. So it may surprise you to learn that the number of non-human cells and organisms in your body are vastly greater than the number of human cells in your body. It's actually 90% to 10%. So according to the number of cells, your body is only 10% human. That's <laughs> pretty crazy to think about, right? So, so you are not you? You're an altered you? <laughs> when we talk about size and mass, you know, things change a little bit as far as percentages. But just by the number of cells, it's only 10%. So that's pretty crazy. Um, the good thing is most of these organisms have a symbiotic relation with us instead of a parasitical relationship. So a symbiotic relationship is where both sides benefit from the relationship. So both of them are benefiting. Both of them are, you know, gaining from working together and it's good for both. So a parasitic relationship is where one side benefits while the other side tends to suffer. Now, that can be where one side benefits and the other side doesn't really have any effects, but typically we see that one side is going to suffer if the other is benefiting. So why is the microbiome important? Well, there are many, many reasons, but the top three, in my opinion, are it helps with proper digestion because many of those good bacteria, or we call them probiotics, uh, release enzymes that help break down our food as it travels through the intestines, making it easier for us to process them and to actually use them for um, the processes that we need in our body to live and to function. It also helps with immune function. Many of them also release compounds that can help neutralize less friendly organisms that get inside us or at least maintain the balance so nobody gets out of control. Um, and then thirdly, it helps with mood regulation. So we're going to talk about this a lot more when we get into neurotransmitters and emotions in another episode. But many of the bacteria in the microbiome actually release neurotransmitters such as dopamine and serotonin, which can affect your mood. So when it comes to microbiome, the key is really balance and variety. So if you have a good balance between them and then a a lot of different types of species in there. It, it helps you protect against a lot more types of invaders, helps break down a lot more types of foods. So that's really the key that you're looking for with your microbiome is balance and variety. Dr. Kilbert, I want to add to that. Um, when you think about the microbiome in the sense of where we've talked about how parasites come in, we know there's at least four categories, if not five different categories of microbiome. And it's mm -hmm. critical because this is how parasites get into it. So you're talking about the gut. Mm -hmm. We also have the lung, so we have a lung microbiome. Yeah. And since a lot of the protozoa are inhaled, that's another key factor of the immune system. Then we have the microbiome under the skin, right? And so under the skin is what is part of our immune system, our ability to resist and build up a barrier system. Then we have the brain, right? We have the microbiome in the brain. Now, what's been really kind of uniquely interesting about the last three years we're finding a different type of microbiome in women in the vaginal area and in the underarms of men. Now, the women also have the one of the underarms, but men don't. So when you're talking about all these microbiomes and the mm -hmm. aspects of how this has an effect on parasites, if your microbiome is skewed up, mm -hmm. you're going to get screwed up. You know? Yeah, it definitely makes it a lot easier for them to get in and to take control and to really cause a lot of serious effects within you. So that's kind of like the key um, 
key guarding uh, point or the entry point where if they can get past the microbiome, they've got you. So if it's screwed up, is that where the screw worm comes in? That's evidently a part of it because <laughs> you don't have that underneath your skin, right? Yeah. <laughs> skin microbiome. We love Dr. Farney. <laughs> All right. So again, that covers a lot of how they get in and some of how they can affect the microbiome. So we talked about some protozoan parasites earlier. A lot of those can cause direct damage or even death of the epithelial cells that form the gut lining. And we talked about sporozoans. Those can actually infiltrate and kind of commandeer those cells um, and kind of change the way they those cells function and what allow is allowed to connect to those cells or grow on, on those cells. Um, so in a way it's kind of like digging up patches of grass in your lawn when you have that, those mass changes or those mass cell destructions in those linings and you have places that have grass and others that don't. And that's bad for the microbiome and it's bad for the host. So some helminth or worm parasites secrete extracellular vesicles or EVs that can interact with the microbiome and inflict or induce different types of changes and again when it goes back to like dr ben was talking about how they can direct you to certain foods that they like or how they can manipulate the host i think a lot of that comes down into the microbiome changes because your microbiome again can send signals to your brain saying well this is what we need because this is what the the bacteria in your gut need to function and to work and when we lose that variety and we lose that balance, certain ones will pop up and become more dominant or domineering and will guide us towards specific foods that they need, which will just allow them to continue to reproduce and grow and become further out of control. Um, so uh, a research study in Thailand examined the microbiome of 391 people that were infected with intestinal parasites and compared them to a control group of non-infected people. Now, there were several different types of parasites, but the most prevalent at about 36% was the intestinal fluke Haplorchis taichui. Bless you, or bless me. <laughs> those infected at a significant, or those infected had a significant increase in three specific types of bacteria, Ruminococcus, Roseburia facies, and Velanella parvula. So, uh, again, uh, research with T. gondii or Toxoplasmosis gondii shows that it can cause major growth of Clostridia bacteria types, which, again, limits diversity. That's bad for the microbiome, bad for the host. So the bottom line when it comes to the microbiome is parasitic infections lead to a decrease in bacterial diversity and alteration of the bacterial community structure in the GI or the lungs or wherever they're at, which, uh, especially in the GI or the gut, can really impact digestion, immune function, mood regulation, hormone regulation, and so much more. So again, I believe that parasites will alter the microbiome to best suit their needs, which unfortunately does not best suit our needs as their host. Um, unfortunately, by the time most of us realize we have a parasite issue, it's like coming home after a vacation to find that some stranger off the street broke into your house, did some remodeling, and moved all their stuff in. And it's time to get the authorities involved, get the eviction notice, and get them out of there, right? So that's what we're here to help with. But uh, another way that they can interfere with the microbiome is by covering them with biofilms. And I'll let Dr. Craig explain more about that. Well, thanks, Dr. Caleb. So 
As I get to talk about biofilm, I'm going to start by just reading off some of the definitions that I looked up on the internet. So here we go on biofilm. Biofilm is an assemblage of surface-associated micro microbial cells that is enclosed in an extracellular polymeric substance matrix. We talked about the matrix, right? <laughs> biofilm is a syn syntropic consortium of microorganisms in which cells stick to each other and often to also to a surface. These adherent cells become embedded within a slimy extracellular matrix that is composed of extracellular polymeric or polymeric substances. Here's another one. Biofilm is a layer of bacteria or microbes that grows on and sticks to the surface of a structure. Biof a biofilm forms when certain microorganisms, for example, some types of bacteria, adhere to the surface of some objects in a moist environment and begin to reproduce. The microorganisms form an attachment to the surface of the object by secreting a slimy, glue-like substance. So what does all that mean? It's a new gray matrix. Exactly. <laughs> what it means is these microbial agents have developed the ability to protect themselves and even thrive in an unwelcome environment and become stealth infections that can adversely affect our health and become difficult to overcome. So one other thing I looked at too is biofilms pose a serious problem for public health because of the increased resistance of biofilm associated organisms to antimicrobial agents and the potential for these organisms to cause infections in patients. So not only just as they are, they can create issues, but they can create this film, this glue-like sticky substance that they are, and when it specifically comes to parasites, they are not only a part of, but can hide in and now the body can't even see them. Kind of like you talked about, they become invisible. And it, it goes on further that, that if you create these biofilms, like say, for example, the digestive tract, now you start to affect the ability of the body to absorb nutrients, and now we get further problems. Or in the lungs, you can't, you can't absorb the oxygen that you need to have healthy function. And that's the world the parasite wants. It exactly. wants to create that film that it can hide right. and eat what you're eating. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's crazy how people how, eat and they're still hungry. What's up with that? Exactly, exactly. Well, I, I remember when I was a kid, they used to say you eat, you must have a tapeworm because of how much you eat. And I never, yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, maybe it was so, but yeah, it, it's just amazing how how they have learned to adapt and change and create. And and they're also, you know, if we're talking about bacteria and other microorganisms, they're incorporating friends basically to help them survive. So it goes back to the idea of if there's trillions of cells that are not us, technically, who's really winning or who's really living? So do you guys know what it what uh, helps break down biofilms, by the way? Please tell us. Acetic acid. And also garlic, oregano, cinnamon, curcumin, uh, N-acetylcysteine, ginger, and cranberry. So have a lot of cranberry ham. Yeah, but what's interesting, in the genetic side, we talked about that. Some people don't have that ability. Right. That, and that's why their microbiomes in the biofilms get so out of whack. Exactly. So. Exactly. But, you know, as we've talked about, too, there are ways to treat it. Even if you don't have that genetic ability, there are things that can be done. So we can fix you. We can rebuild you. Exactly. Exactly. Well, with that in mind, since I covered that, I'm going to hand it over to Dr. Kaysen, and he can talk about the thieves and the terrorists that live within us. 
So there's a concept that the microverse mimics the macroverse. The microverse and our body are on a cellular uh, microscopic level. Uh, mimics the macroverse and the cosmos and everything here. So I'm going to kind of take that concept here. I'm going to kind of give a persona to these parasites or kind of a little bit better analogy or understanding of it. So when we think of our body, we think of a ecosystem. And in the ecosystem, we have our population. And our population is going to be, again, our microbiome. Mm -hmm. These other things that outnumber us, 90 or 9 to 1, these are the things that live there. So in this, we have our good population, and then we have our negative population that causes more issues. And so we try to keep those in checks and balances. And we have our cops and our federal agents, you know, which are different types of our white blood cells. So when we look at parasites, parasites are like a terrorist. They sneak in, they hide out, and they disrupt the body. So when we think of a, a terrorist or a terrorist site, as I call them, how do they go through and mess with us? So if a terrorist was going to come attack us, it'd try to take down our communication systems. It would mess with our supply lines and, and supply chains. It would mess with our ability to um, remove waste and to clear things up and to create areas where waste accumulates so it can hide out. So think of a gangster or somebody hiding out in a bad neighborhood where they've kind of taken over a whole building or something. I mean, they make movies like this all the time based on these characters. And this really is very symbolic of what these terrorists do in our body. For example, if they're going to come through and mess with our communication systems, they're going to disrupt our communication systems. Well, how do they do that? Well, toxicity is one of the big ones that they can come through and affect that on so many levels. They're going to affect our supply lines. They're going to affect our ability to absorb oxygen properly for energy. It's going to affect our ability in our digestive tract to absorb what we're eating and what we're breaking down before we can assimilate into our body. It's going to affect our ability to detoxify properly so these toxins eventually accumulate. It's like you can't flush the toilet anymore. You can't put garbage out in the street anymore because nobody's coming by to pick it up. Everything's accumulating. It's getting stinky in here. And what do you do? And this is how these things go through and create an environment where they can thrive. You know, much like organized crime or something like that, this really comes in and takes over and really manipulates your body for it can exist and still resist all of the uh, federal agents or the cops or evade them and hide out from them. So this is what this is like in your body is you have a good population of your microbiome that is being destroyed, upset, and not being able to overcome this because it has uh, hid away from our uh, natural defenses or our armies or whatever you want to call it because we're calling the national guard sometimes we have to conscript and bring in other armies from other countries like our garlic and cranberry and other things like that to come help us clear these things out so th this is a war this is a battle that's going on and so next time you watch any type of film that has a terrorist or organized crime or anything like that I think this is what goes on in your body all the time i mean so trying to give you a better way of understanding how these things work so a, and I'm going to go into this a little more detail when we get into neurology and uh, hormones. I'm going to talk about how thyroid and the adrenals are all manipulated by this so they can wear you out and, and just take advantage of you. So the other side of this is making sure that these terrorists, you know, aren't necessarily destroying us all the time. We also have the thieves, which are kind of our low level hoodlums. You know, they're stealing stuff, you know, the TVs, whatever 
from the houses. In this case here, they're still in your nutrients that you eat. So before you even get a chance to absorb it into your body, and let me go back and explain, from the mouth to the anus is a tube that passes through your body. Everything in that tube isn't necessarily in your body. So that means that a lot of the things that you would see on testing, like asonophils, things in your blood work, things like this, if it's in your gut, it's not going to show up on that. And unless it, and if it doesn't show up on that and you can't find an imaging because it has a way to hide out in the biofilms. I've talked to several patients of mine who are medical doctors and I go, you guys had to go through and do colonoscopies and stuff on people. Like, oh yeah, yeah, I've done plenty of them. I go, do you ever see a parasite? Never. Isn't that strange? You know, you've never seen one. Did you not know what to look for? Or was it just not able to see it because the biofilms were there? So it's quite interesting. So as we go through and we look at these different parasites or other parasites that are either stealing from us or feeding on us and, and eating us, you know, the old term is, well, what's eating you? Probably a parasite. So <laughs> these are things that we have to keep in mind as we're going through this. What are they doing to us and how are they affecting us? Are they in the gut? Are they in the organs? Are they in their stitchal space? Are they moving in between? Because they do go visit their friends. They do go travel throughout the body, especially according to where the moon cycle is. That affects quite a bit. We're going to talk about that in the future. But these are all interesting things to keep track of. And we're going to go into a lot more depth on this. But as we go through and we talk about more of these episodes here and we go through and start laying this out, keep in mind uh, this this kind of a uh, movie script I kind of talk about here are these terrorists and how they're attacking our body and how they're doing this. We've got to get a hold of them. We've got to be able to fight them off. We've got to come in. I mean, we need to send up a bat signal. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's. Well, and don't forget their recruitment ability too, as we talked yeah. about on the microbiome and in, in mm. the biofilms, they'll recruit other bacteria to mm -hmm. be on their side instead of our side. So. Yeah. So it becomes this whole battle for the 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 salvation of the city here. I mean, this is what we're we're dealing with. So you're crossing over into genres here from I know. Batman and the Matrix. Hey, you know what? It, it, it all works. Yeah. <laughs> I told you we're gonna come up with the whole new script here. This is gonna be a great movie when we get done. I mean, we're gonna have elements of everything here. So even little jaws and oh, never mind. Oh yeah, yeah a different one. We'll talk about that parasite later. But so that's what I have for that today. So. Thanks, Dr. Kyson. So I'm going to hit on parasites and gut health. Um, I'm going to echo a lot of what Dr. Ben said in the last episode as far as just some classifications of parasites real quick. So again, uh, intestinal parasites can be divided up into two groups, uh, your protozoa and your helminths. And for a parasite to be classified as an intestinal parasite, it must have a life cycle within the human intestine. And although it may have life cycles in other areas, such as the heart and the circulation, the lungs, and other tissues within the body. But for now, we're going to hone in on the gut. So depending on the species, they can be microscopic and range in size from being very tiny, like your protozoas, which are just a, a few micrometers, to being very large uh, tapeworms that Dr. Ben mentioned earlier that can get up to several inches long. So transmission of protozoa parasites that live in the human body, as Dr. Caleb was talking about, can occur through a fecal-to-oral route, and that can be something that we ingest or inhale. And again, I want to touch on a good example of a protozoa is your Giardia uh, because of its effect that it has on the gut. So again, this is a blood-borne protozoa that can cause severe stomach infection that's often missed and misdiagnosed as either a stomach bug or a stomach virus or an upset stomach. And it's estimated that about 50% of the drinking water in the U.S. has Giardia present. 
And chlorine doesn't kill the Giardia because of the hard shell with which Giardia has to protect itself from the chlorine. So not all the uh, water treatment systems can prevent this necessarily. So next up, your helminths. You have the three different types there. You have your roundworms, your flukes, and your tapeworms. So your roundworms or your nematodes can exist, as Dr. Ben said, as both cysts or eggs and then become adults, which are your trophozytes. And it's a common misunderstanding that in order to get a worm, one must ingest a worm, but this is simply not the case. It's more common actually to uh, ingest and even inhale, again, the microscopic eggs, which will then hatch inside of the body and become adults and cause the widespread damage. So as I alluded to in the first episode, the most common roundworm in North America is your pinworm. And these are the guys that travel outside of the colon and lay their eggs around the anus, causing itching and irritation and inflammation. So pinworms can also, though, travel to other areas of the body, such as your hands, feet, your legs and your arms, uh, and even into your eyes. So really anywhere. <laughs> so another very common uh, roundworm in the United States and North America is your, hook, your hookworm. And it's actually called the Nicator americanus which translates in English to the American murderer because of the amount of damage it can do within the body. And if you look at these guys, you know, Dr. Ben, as he said, thankfully we don't have pictures to show a lot of this stuff because it is nightmare fuel. Um, <laughs> they do have the, they're monsters. I thought about that. These hookworms have sharp teeth uh, or cutting plates that uh, attach onto the walls of the gut where they feed on blood. So, uh, this can actually cause um, iron deficiency anemia because of the small blood loss and the way that it moves around. And I'll touch on hookworm in a later episode a little bit more in depth. Uh, next up, you have another type of roundworm is your whipworm. And these guys hatch in the small intestine. And when they attach themselves to the gut and grow to adulthood where they can lay 20,000 eggs per day. So as you can see, it's kind of it gets hard to get ahead of these guys because of the, the rate of which they can reproduce. So we might be able to go off and kill them, but this also is dependent upon, as we'll talk about later, the moon cycle and how they reproduce. So it gets tricky to try to time when you want to really go after them hard uh, to get ahead of this thing. Uh, next up, you have your Ascariasis lumbricoides. And the name of this parasite is appropriate because these guys are indeed a scary. <laughs> they are scary. There's that dad joke I was talking about. So, <laughs> so, uh, the pictures, when these guys get really bad and really out of control, this can cause um, megacolon, uh, which is where your gut basically becomes huge or giant and can impact the colon as well. And when you look at the surgical procedures done to remove this, um, it's terrifying to look at just how much, how big they are. Um, yeah, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to paint too much of a verbal picture there. I'll let you guys do some uh, searching on Doctor G or Google. So, um, with that, moving on to your flukes. There's three types of flukes. You have your intestinal, your urinary, and another classification is oriental because where they're located at. So again, focusing on the intestinal side, there are blood flukes that I'd already uh, we had already kind of mentioned earlier that attack the GI system, and these are native to Southeast Asia. Taiwan, China, India, and even Africa and South America. So being mindful of that travel history for the patient is vital when you're, when you're first meeting them and taking a history. And then lastly, you have your tapeworms or your cystodes, which are the longest of the intestinal worms. 
And this is one that you're, that Dr. Ben had mentioned earlier that your average person probably thinks of when they hear the word parasite. And tapeworms can grow anywhere from half an inch long to a whopping 33 feet long and can live up to 25 years. So there's different types of tapeworms depending on the exposure, the transmission that Dr. Caleb talked about. So you have your beef tapeworm, pork tapeworm, fish tapeworm, rodent tapeworm, dog and dwarf. And a mature tapeworm, you ready for this, can lay 1 million eggs per day. So you heard that right. 1 million eggs per day. And these, as long as you can kill most of them <laughs> off, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> million. <laughs> oh, pull out the A bomb. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. So, um, Kraken, time for Kraken. Yep. When these eggs are embedded there in the toxic fecal matter, they become impacted on the walls of an unhealthy colon. And, um, and again, when I first learned about this stuff, going through the slides and Dr. Ben's presentation all those years ago, um, it stuck with me to say the least. <laughs> so, sorry, the eggs are the good. concept. Yes, <laughs> yes, all of the above. <laughs> so, and then lastly, I just wanted to touch just briefly on some signs and symptoms of these types of parasites. So, right off the bat, since we're dealing with the gut, I do want to touch on food sensitivities. And docs, feel free to chime in on this, but some of the most common ones that we see are gluten, dairy, corn, soy, nightshades, um, and much more. I mean, it's not limited to that, obviously, but again, just touching on some of the most common ones. Do you guys see anything else? Yeah, a lot, of root, a lot of root vegetables yep. that we talk mm -hmm. about, things that grow on the ground that have that mold and have the parasitical things in them. They have mm -hmm. a lot to do with that as well. So one of the concepts here that as we go through, we talk about these things and why this seems very... Um, not far-fetched, but far removed from you as you're hearing about these concepts and it doesn't feel real to you necessarily. And, and it always cracks me up because we go through, we find parasites on patients and we go through and start treating like, okay, I'm treating this parasite until it comes out and they see this thing in the stool and they're looking at it going, oh, it is real. It's kind of like seeing Bigfoot for the first time. You hear about it like, yeah, okay, cool, whatever. You know, it's not really something that you can identify with until you see it. And all of a sudden there's a shift that you feel going, Okay, the reality of the situation is this is something I'm really dealing with when you see it come out, you know. Mm -hmm. So or feel it come out. Oh, that too. Yeah. Or when it's dangling there, and you, or, pull and you it have to out. pull it out. Exactly. Ooh, yeah. I've had patients who had to literally pull tapeworms out. What's the longest tapeworm you guys have ever had a patient pull out? Well, I've had a patient bringing one in is about twenty feet in a gallon bag. Oh, I got about thirteen is my longest. So you got me beat. So not that it's competition. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah, that <yeah>, is. <laughs> So, so we're going to go out and recruit patients. How long one you got? <laughs> uh, well, don't forget, I mean, we've seen them come out of skin. Yeah. We've seen them come out or in the eyes. Uh, we've seen them come up coughed up, right? So there's a lot of ways these things become prevalent. And you just, I mean, you cough something, you go, it's kind of pinkish, reddish, brownish, greenish color. And you're going, oh, yeah, well, let's open that up and take a, take a look at that. And most people don't want to do that. But when we try to train our clients or our patients, say, start looking at what's coming out of your body because it's going to give you some indication of what you're really fighting inside. Mm -hmm. And most people go, in fact, most people don't look. I mean, 72% of the people just get up and flush, right? And I'm going, you what? might want to take a look. What percentage did you say? 72% don't look. Okay. Supposedly, that was the last could, research. 72.3. Yeah, I said, there you go. <laughs> Seven, six, two, eight, five. So start looking. Yeah, start exactly. looking. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that's a really good point that you brought up, Dr. Kyson. I think in a lot of ways, it's weirdly affirming for the patient. 
when they do start passing that stuff. And especially when, you know, if they've, if they've been through so much, it's kind of like when they first start working with you, there's some trust to be built. And then when they start passing that, they're like, okay, I'm, I'm with you now. It's almost like they're euphoric. Ooh, I found one. Yes. Oh no, I found one. Exactly. <laughs> so just some, some other, you know, signs that and symptoms that Dr. Ben was hitting on was the pattern of the stool. So you don't have to see the big long tapeworm in your stool. Things to look out for would be loose stool or really foul smelling stool. Like if, if your house, that wing of the house has to be shut down for a good long while after you've gone, <laughs> you know, start paying attention to that. Diarrhea, mucus in stool or biofilm coming out through the stool, abdominal cramping or gas or bloating, loss of appetite, uh, again, the distended abdomen. Uh, one that hits near and dear to me, um, just with, with my wife that I'll touch on in the last episode is coughing or severe coughing or, or bronchospasm, uh, fever and vomiting, and then malaise of fatigue, just the general feeling of being unwell. And then skin changes as well, rashes, eczema, hives, acne, and, and more. And, and these symptoms can last for days, weeks, and even be on and off for, for years. So with that, gentlemen, do you have anything else that you care to chime in before we close it up? A couple of things. Sure. Unexplained bruising, mm-hmm. right? Specifically in the older to geriatric populations, we think it's a blood circulation issue, and to some degree it is. When we talk about the bedding of some of those, they'll just create a bruise. Right, and you're like, what happened? That was your body really trying to to attack it. And then number two is the occasional blood when you go to wipe, right? Now we talked about the mucus. You brought that up. It's like how many times do you have to wipe to get clean, right? Versus oh, there was a little bit of blood, which you know most people go, oh, it's not an issue. And, and a lot of females or women, they get that confused what that is as well. And so there's a lot of things that are pretty common in there. And then don't forget, we'll bring this up later, but. Uh, sexually transmitted infections. You know, a lot of women have that problem and those issues and symptomatology as well. We'll go into greater detail. Absolutely. And then last one, just as you're talking about that, you know, I've hit on the pinworm so much. Another sign to look out for, particularly with regards to the GI system, is anal itching. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and then as we're going to hit on and with the in the later episode with the different cycles, more specifically the moon cycle, watch how your symptoms fluctuate about every four weeks or so. Yep. So. So you're talking about anal itching, not to add too much to that, but we've all seen the seen dogs drag their butts on carpet or whatever else. And that's basically what they're trying to do is they have this anal itching because these eggs have been laid. So now what they're doing is they're dragging them across the carpet. And then you walk on the carpet, kick them up in the air and uh, breathe them in. Yeah. So it's and the cycle continues. And the cycle continues, and now you're infected with it, and and this is how it important it is. I don't know if we're covering this a whole lot in in the series, but when you have pets in the house and somebody has a parasite, more than likely, everybody else is going to get it too, just because mm-hmm. the way it gets spread around. So we generally say you have to treat the whole house. Yep. Right. Babies, and dogs, or family members. Right. Exactly. And cats sometimes. <laughs> I'll cover that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And and thank you both of you guys for perfectly foreshadowing in a later episode how I'm gonna talk about the house and how mm-hmm. we often see family. So that's there thank, you go. thanks for the alley oop. So you got it. <laughs> so with that, uh, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Docera Digest and please tune in next time as we go over parasitic infections and how they affect the brain and the neurology, your hormones, your endocrine system, and even your emotions. 
Thank you for listening to the Docera Digest podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also find all the episodes and show notes over at doceralifecenter.com. While you're on the website, also be sure to check out the blog where you'll find videos and articles to help you proactively rebalance your health.